This morning we come to the third sermon in this series called Final Analysis, a study of eschatology or study of the end times. I would say two or three things. Number one, this is not an exhaustive uh, sermon series. That would take a long, long time. So it isn't that. We are looking at the major events in the end time and asking questions. What are they? Simply, what is the Great Tribulation? Who is the Antichrist? Or what are the characteristics of the Antichrist? Uh, What is the millennium? Those kinds of things. And this morning we are brought to the uh, uh, sermon. Well, our first sermon, let me review our first sermon. We said that the study of eschatology ought to lead to sanctification, not speculation. Uh, So it ought to lead us to want to be more like Christ, not to try to figure out dates and times, things like that. And then last week, we looked at how the rapture both uh, confronts sinners and comforts believers. So the rapture confronts sinners because of the immediacy of it, and it uh, comforts believers because of the reality uh, that we will be with the Lord at the rapture. And I kind of put my cards on the table last week and told you where I was in my understanding of the events. Let me share for you a, uh, just a graph that may help you to understand that a little bit better. And uh, when we look at it, what we will see is uh, Christ's coming, of course. We know that he came to earth, born, uh, died, and rose again. And then we will see uh, the uh, churches established. And after the churches established, an important historical event is Israel becoming a nation, as that has happened in the past century. And then what I believe is the next uh, great historical event is the rapture. Uh, And then the great tribulation, seven years of tribulation uh, on the earth, and then Christ's second coming in Armageddon. Let me pause there for a moment. Those who have a post-trib view of the rapture, which where I went to seminary, most uh, professors, more professors have a post-trib view of the rapture than a pre-trib view. I happen to be very much affected by Danny Aiken's theology, who was the president of the seminary. I hold to a rapture here. They will take that green line that says rapture, Christ's second coming, and put that together in one event. And that would occur after the tribulation. Uh, Then there's the battle of Armageddon. Uh, There are a couple of judgments. The sheep and goats judgment. The the millennium begins. Uh, Christ's reign on the earth for a thousand years. Uh, The great white throne judgment of the dead and Satan. And finally, a new heaven and a new earth. All right, that is my understanding of how things are going to unfold. And I would just say to you uh, that, that uh, as I heard Mark Driscoll said about something recently, I hold on to uh, my pre-millennial uh, pre-trib view with enough tenacity to take a paper cut for it, okay? So that's, uh, that's just what I want you to know. Uh, that, uh, we'll get that up on my blog by the end of the day or maybe tomorrow if you want to go back and look at it. And so with that in mind, we are at the great tribulation part. The rapture we talked about last week, today the great tribulation. And uh, 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 James read part of the description of the great tribulation. Uh, The great tribulation is a seven-year period between the rapture of Christ, uh, according to my view, the rapture of Christ and the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. A seven-year period where God's wrath is poured out on the earth. It will be a time of unprecedented, chaotic, uh, cosmic 
uh, destruction and devastation. It begins, I believe, with the covenant made between the Antichrist. We'll learn more about him next week between the Antichrist and Israel. And I think about halfway through that covenant is broken between the Antichrist and Israel. And then uh, then literally all hell breaks loose in the last half of this tribulation period. From this uh, tribulation, we discover two characteristics of God, and this is most important. Number one, that God is just, and number two, that God is gracious. Here's how we discover his justice. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, John sees this revelation of seals, a book, in a sense, of destiny that has the future in it for this time period, and they look through heaven to find somebody who can open this book. And when they do, he opens it one seal, uh, almost like one chapter at a time. But here's what is interesting. You have seven seals, then you have seven trumpets and seven bowls. You have all kinds of blanks in your bulletin, and I would encourage you to use those this morning if you just want to tuck away the information from this. You have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. But here's how they work. You have six seals, and when the seventh seal is opened, it contains the seven trumpets. And you have seven trumpets, but when the seventh trumpet is opened, it contains the seven bowls. It's like a telescope. Within that telescope, or maybe a zoom lens on the camera, within that zoom lens is all the zoom necessary, but one part of the lens, it's telescopic, tucked into the other, which is tucked into the other, and that indeed is how these bowls, these, uh, these seals, I-, I believe, and trumpets and bowls work. When you think you're to number seven, which is God's number of completion, and you're finished, All of a sudden, now there are seven trumpets. And when you're to the seventh trumpet and you think, this has to be over, all of a sudden, there are now seven bowls of the wrath of God. And it intensifies uh, through this time period. So let's look at how God is just and how he is gracious. And we'll go through the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. That's what we'll do. The first seal, uh, and the second, third, and fourth are the four horsemen. And the first seal is on a white horse. Uh, uh, This horseman is on a white horse, comes conquering and to conquer. There are different opinions as to who this is. I think this is the Antichrist. Others will uh, have different perspectives. Some will even say this is Jesus since he ultimately comes in Revelation 19 on a white horse. But I think the number one rule of uh, interpreting Scripture is context. And in this context, it doesn't seem to fit that this would be Jesus. So next week we'll discover more about who the Antichrist is. Uh, The second seal is the red horse. The red horse is the horse of war. And so he is given the ability, the opportunity to totally remove peace from the earth. And so you think that there are wars now and there, are ter- there is turmoil now. Imagine when this red horseman uh, rides through the earth and is given the, uh, r- the free reign, if you will, to remove peace from the earth. I would say to you, whether or not you believe that Jesus will come back before or after the tribulation, uh, we believe in the great tribulation either way. 
I had someone ask me this week, Jerry, could these things simply be metaphorical? Well, you will see that much of what happens mirrors the plagues in the Old Testament. So here's my answer to that. Either we would believe those plagues are metaphorical and didn't actually happen, or we believe this is, uh, and this is metaphorical, or those plagues were real, and these are actual, real events that will occur. The third seal is the black horse. He's holding scales in his hand. Uh, it is mentioned uh, uh, in reference to the third seal that they're uh, of, of grain and barley and things like that. Uh, this is a rider of severe famine. Uh, this horseman will, br- will bring severe famine. If you read my blog, you read this week, uh, this weekend of my deep concern over hunger in our county. And hunger in our county is a significant problem. It is a significant problem. But hunger in our county uh, doesn't hold a light to the hunger that will accompany this horseman. As he brings severe famine on the inhabited earth, the fourth horseman rides a pale horse, and he brings with him pestilence and wild beast. And as James has read for us and to us uh, at this point, a fourth of the population of the earth uh, will die. Now, when we look at that, let's just say for sake of argument that Jesus Christ were to come back tonight. And if he were, and I believe he could, if he were to come back tonight, let's say for sake of argument that two of the seven billion people on the face of the earth are born-again followers of Christ. That would leave five billion people on the earth at this point In the great tribulation, another one and a quarter billion people have died. Imagine trying to find graves for one and a quarter of billion people over a period of two or three years. The significant carnage, the the stench, the smell of death would be overbearing. This is a tremendous scene and a tremendous sight that occurs Now, with the fifth seal, uh, attention turns to heaven. And when it does, uh, John sees the martyrs in heaven. These are people, I believe, who've come to Christ through the great tribulation. That through this time period of great tribulation, there will be opportunity for people to receive Christ as their Savior. And so we see a picture of the martyrs in heaven. Uh, The sixth seal then turns back to the earth and there is cosmic upheaval. Uh, So much so that people hide themselves and call for the mountains and rocks to fall on them. They say, hide us from, interesting quote, the wrath of the Lamb. They recognize this pouring out, uh, this cosmic upheaval as none other than the work of God himself. That he is pouring out his wrath. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, John says the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is a tremendous, uh, horrific moment in human history. Where lost, unredeemed humanity stands at the judgment of God with this wrath being poured out. And then you would hope that the seventh seal is done, it's it, and it's all. But when the Lamb opens the, the book and takes the seal off of the seventh chapter, it 
brings the telescope out and reveals now seven trumpets to be blown. Seven trumpets. The first trumpet, a third of the vegetation on earth is burned. So a third of all vegetation is burned. What does that do? It takes the famine that has already been severe and amplifies it. People now are scrambling just to find something to feed their children. The second trumpet is blown by the angel, and when it is, a third of sea life is destroyed, and the third of the sea becomes blood. So take the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Arctic Oceans, the Indian Ocean, take the, uh, a third of the seas, and they become blood at the blowing of the seal. Uh, of this trumpet. The third trumpet, we're now in chapter 8, is blown and a third of fresh water is poisoned. So a third of all streams and lakes that supply fresh water is poisoned by wormwood. Many people die. That brings us to the fourth trumpet. And when we get to the fourth trumpet, a third of the heavenly bodies are darkened. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars become dark. And with that, there's an addition of eight hours of total darkness, total darkness on the planet. The fifth trumpet really reminds us of Egypt, except there's this twist. It reminds us of the exodus. It reminds us of the plagues. There is a pit opened in the heart of the earth, and out of this uh, smoking pit come locusts. Uh, locusts are flying uh, uh, creatures, flying animals. They, they uh, can devour and eat. But these locusts also have the capacity to sting like scorpions. And they come out and their torment uh, is to sting. Revelation 9 describes uh, these uh, locusts in appearance. The locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold and their faces like human faces. Their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. This is a grotesque picture. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. So you have these, uh, these grotesque creatures that are released. Sixth trumpet. Let me say prior to this that people, as a result of these locusts, want to die, but they can't. They beg God to die, but they can't. Then at the sixth trumpet, God answers their requests for death, and a third of mankind is killed. Third. All right, so if we started out with 5 billion, if we assume the rapture prior to the great tribulation and we have 5 billion and we've lost one and a quarter, we're down to 3.75. If a third of the rest of humanity at that point, uh, that's another one and a quarter billion people dead. Two and a half billion or so left alive. You would think at this point that humanity has gotten the picture. God is on his throne. He is dealing wrath. But 9, 20, and 21 says this, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worship in demons, 
and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or thefts. They kept on sinning. The eight hours of extra darkness, rather than being used to push them toward the light, actually became a place for them to revel in their sexual sin. It became a place for those who were greedy to become more greedy and steal even more. You would say, Jerry, surely the, 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 the wrath of God would have evoked such fear in these people that they would have come uh, to faith in Christ. I'm reminded of someone who was at baptism to see the baptism of a, uh, of a family member. Another person shared with me, she invited him to church, shared Christ with him, went through a conversation with him, only for that conversation to end like this. I have time. I have time. And the reality is, I believe in the capacity to harden one's heart by repeated refusal. I would say to you this morning, if the Holy Spirit is dealing with your heart, respond now. Don't say, I have time. We're not promised tomorrow. Cosmically, personally, none of us is. Notice what happens here. The seventh trumpet, you would hope and think this is it. But in the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls are unpackaged. In between this, the Antichrist has risen to power. People have flocked to follow him. They are worshiping him. Uh, We'll talk about that next week. And the first bowl of God's wrath is opened. And when it is, there are incurable sores on the worshipers of the beast. Incurable sores. The word incurable is a word that suggests finality. This morning, a woman came up to me after the early service to ask me to pray for her because she has a tumor, a brain tumor, and she discovered this week that it is inoperable. You can deal with a lot of things until you hear a word with the prefix in on the front of it, can't you? Inoperable, incurable, suggests finality. These worshipers of the beast will never rid their bodies of the sores. They are incurable sores. The second bowl Death to all of sea life. A third of it dead until now. Now all of the sea life is dead. That only intensifies and amplifies the famine, by the way. The third bowl, all fresh water, is now turned to blood. There is no safe water to drink anywhere. That only intensifies death. The fourth bowl, all of humanity is scorched as the sun is allowed to unleash its hot fury on their skin. 
you would think at this point, then, uh, we've gone through seven seals and seven trumpets, and we're at bowl four. But Revelation 16, 9 says this, They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent, nor give him glory. The hardness of the human heart. You say, Jerry, how could they do this? I can never imagine this happening. This seems so unbelievable. But you've seen just a little taste of it. Let me remind you. Let me rewind you back to Hurricane Katrina. Recall when on a Sunday evening, not far from this date, uh, uh, in, in August as I recall, that we all sat and watched as that storm pounded that coastline in the city of New Orleans. And immediately on Monday morning, we sent word out, and we and other churches in this county filled a wonderful organized truck full of supplies and, and sent them. We wanted to be there. We wanted to do something. I sat, I sat in meetings with county leaders as we anticipated the possibility of people being moved into this county. And where will we house these people? And you felt, even among all, all of us, this desire to help except by a certain group of people. And what did they do? Do you know what they did? As soon as night fell, they went into the city and looted it. They looted it. People who had lost everything, people who had lost their livelihoods, yet you have people who are of such depraved mind that they don't care for anyone who's lost anything. They see it as an opportunity to go and in their greed steal anything they can. Vandals went in the city and what the water did not destroy, they destroyed with bricks and blocks and rocks and other things. It is the capacity of humanity to commit atrocious acts. All we have to do is go back to Hitler. All we have to do is look at what is happening today in Syria and realize that humanity has this horrendous capacity for evil. It exists. And in the face of God saying, I will deal once and for all with the Hitlers. I will deal once and for all with the despotic rulers of the day. I will deal once and for all with the child abusers. I will deal once and for all with this sin. I will pour my wrath out on it. And surely in that moment, people who are committing such atrocious acts would turn from them and turn to God. No, they don't. They curse the very God who is pouring his wrath out in that moment. They do not change. The fifth bowl is that the beast's kingdom is plunged into darkness. There's total darkness. We're now in Revelation 16. There's total darkness. Rather than that darkness being a motivation to go toward the light, Verse 11 of Revelation 16 says, People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and source. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth bowl is the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are dried up and there's a preparation for the uh, armies to march in for the battle of Armageddon. And the final, ultimate bowl of wrath is the destruction of Babylon. 
who is Babylon. Babylon known all throughout Scripture as the epitome of rebellion against God. Either literally or metaphorically, rebellion against God. How did the people respond? Verse 21 of Revelation 16. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. Wow. It is difficult for us to picture planet Earth and its inhabitants. After the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. In the middle of it, or maybe more toward the beginning of it, there is grace. You see, I would contend that God cannot be gracious without being just, and that God, by his own character, cannot be just without being gracious. So so what happens? Well, God is bringing judgment on all the nations who bring themselves up against Israel and against his people. And despite all of the horrifying details of this seven-year period, there are worshipers of God. Revelation 7.3, the angels are told to hold back the winds. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. What does God do? He saves a remnant of his people Israel. Lest you think this is a surprise, I am teaching the Old Testament at Montreat right now, and we have just covered what God did after Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. You have, the, you have the flood, you have the wickedness and the sin. You could go back to Genesis 3, really. You have Cain killing his brother Abel, and then you have the atrocious sins that brought the flood. You have the Tower of Babel, the arrogance. And in, in chapter 12, what does God do? He, he raises up somebody in the middle of the sin and says, listen, uh, your name is Abram. I am calling you, and through you, I, I want to bless everybody. In the middle of the tribulation of incredible and horrific, unbridled sin, God calls out a remnant of people by his grace and says, I will have a light in this dark. That's the way he works. He's all about penetrating the darkness with light. In Revelation 9.4, those scorpion-like locusts are kept from harming those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. So those who have come to, to faith in Christ are protected through the tribulation. Those of my brothers uh, who believe and sisters who believe that the church will be there would say, that's the church, and the church is protected through the tribulation. Or this next reference, I'll get to it in a moment. Let me go to Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, pictures in a, in a summary form what, happened, what happens in Revelation 6 through, through 18. But then verse 12 says this, so all of this is happening, the trumpets, the seals, the bowls. But, but Joel 2, 12 through 13 says, yet even now declares the Lord, 
return to me with all your heart. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rid your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Joel writes that in light of the tribulation. Return, God says, even during the tribulation. God has given an invitation to return. Verse 32 of Joel 2, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. I am convinced that Joel is writing about the great tribulation and that he is saying even during that time there will be an opportunity and an invitation going forward for people to respond and trust Christ as their Savior. And others will come to Christ. Joel is most likely writing about Israel. Others will come to Christ from the nations. Revelation 7 verse 9 Uh, John's eyes are lifted up and he says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So during this time of tribulation, the gracious God extends an invitation to Israel a remnant of Israel to believe and to all unbelievers to trust him. I'm convinced that if Jesus Christ were to come back today and the church were to be raptured, that there would be those among us in here who sadly would still be here. But there would be opportunity for you to come to Christ. I wouldn't wait. I would say to you as I read this, the very honest question comes to my mind. God, I've never seen you like this. Is he really just? Is God just in doing this? And I would say to you, if Revelation 5 Verses 9 and 10 did not precede Revelation 6. I would struggle with the justice of God. Why is that? When all of this is about to unfold, they have this book that has this written in it. And they're trying to find somebody who can just open the pages of the book, take the seal off, And unveil the wrath of God. And they look all through heaven. It is almost as if heaven is in in a bit of turmoil. Angst or anguish. And verse 9 of Revelation 5 says this. They sang a new song. The tone changed. There's music now saying, and here was the song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. They found somebody who could take the book and open the seals 
chapter by chapter. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nations. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Here's my point. I have a daughter who's in this service and a son who's next door in Bible study. My daughter is 19. My son is 10. I love you. I love being your pastor. You are a joy to me. I mean that. There are none of you that I come close to loving enough to say that if it took my daughter's death to save you, I would give her. I love her more. I would not do that. That if it took my 10-year-old son's death to bring you life, all of you will have... 700 or so people here today, all of you. I would do it for seven, no. I wouldn't do it for 7,000. I wouldn't do it for 7 million. Call me selfish. All you want, I love my son more. God loved you enough to send his only son to die. To be beaten, to be stripped, to hang on a cross. He is justified in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Because at the very beginning of the chart was a cross. If I had given Hannah or Trent, and I were to pass you one day, and you were going on your merry way, as if you didn't care. I would be justified in my anger. It is the great tribulation that shouts forth the gospel of the cross. When I was a kid, we grew up way old-fashioned, little Free Will Baptist Church. On Sunday nights, we'd have one of those fired-up services from time to time. When it was over, we began to sing a song of invitation, much like we do here. And on many a Sunday night, that this, these words would swell and kind of fill up that little brick building. Oh, do not let the words depart and close thine eyes against the light. Poor sinner, harden not your heart. Be saved, oh, tonight. Oh, why not tonight? Oh, why not tonight? Wilt thou be saved? Then why not tonight? 
I would say, why not today? Oh, sinner, harden not your heart. Be saved today. Jerry, how? Would you bow your heads? How can I be saved? How today can I be saved? You can be saved by turning from your sin. Turning from your sin. Turning to Jesus as your Savior. Believing that he indeed was the Son of God who died on the cross for you. Rose from the dead and is coming back. So you must believe your sin required his death. And believe that his death covers your sin. And you can be saved. You turn from your sin and turn to him as your Savior. If you're in here this morning and you say, Jerry, I want to be saved. This morning as I sit here, I want to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus as my Savior. Would you slip up your hand right now? Anybody in here? And you say, this is the day that I turn from my sin And turn to Jesus as my Savior. Anyone here today? Let me say to you that as we sit here and as we sing, we're going to sing one song as we do. If that is you and you want to trust Christ as your Savior, God is dealing with you. Don't delay. Don't delay. What we ask you today is to do something different. If that's you, just trek to the back of the auditorium. One of our staff members will be there waiting on you. All right? Don't need to walk down this way. Just walk back that way. That way they can take you to a quiet spot, be able to lead you to Christ. Jesus, thank you for dying for us, raising from the dead. One day you'll return in glory. We sing this song to you right now out of worship. Amen.